It was so great to have Pastor Tony here last week, uh, my youth pastor growing up, and just uh, he is—he just really encouraged us and challenged us, and, and I, I just love how the Holy Spirit orchestrates um, what He's saying to us as a body here at Integrity. Um, I just—I always stand in awe of how when everyone who comes up and says something, they're just a delivery boy or girl. It's, it's, it's really, it's God speaking to us as a church. And it was just so encouraged to hear him last week because I had just started a series that I'm calling Running with the Horses. And, and he focused uh, that time on the importance of forgiveness. And, and as we're, this series is tying in with this desire to really want to renew our strength and our faith and just kind of, just kind of get going again and really just start hard, pursuing hard after God. His message was so timely because the end of the day, we'll never be able to advance spiritually if we have bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. One of the first things that, need, that God needs to deal with in our hearts if we want to move forward in our spiritual journey is we need to get a hold of uh, and extend forgiveness, the same forgiveness we've been recipients of. We need to extend that to other people. And so I was just so encouraged uh, as he brought that message last week. And then the prior week I talked about, the, um, about how what happens when apathy sets in, um, just like it did to the people of God in the time of Jeremiah. If you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to jump online and, and grab that. But it was, it was really it was a, a call to just to examine our hearts, to repent and return back to for our first love, Jesus Christ. And so it, the last couple of weeks kind of ties together. And now as we continue to move forward, um, we pick up on our series that I'm calling Running with the horses. And I thought, you know, it'd probably be a good idea to give you an idea of where I'm going with this title of running uh, with the horses. Um, we began by looking at the life of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was born during the reign of the most wicked king, uh, a man by the name of Manasseh. Just a little bit of background from where we covered two weeks ago. Interestingly, though, uh, before Manasseh dies, he is captured. He is led around by his captors with a ring in his nose. That's got to be painful. That, that'll encourage you to keep up with the person leading that thing, right? So he's got, a, he's got a ring in his nose, and they're leading the king Manasseh around. And Manasseh comes to the point where he realizes he needs to, he, he, that there was one true God, and he repents to God and turns back to the Lord and God delivers him from his captures and he starts to put in motion again change but he falls short of time and he ends up dying and, and when he dies Amnon his son takes over but Amnon had learned the ways of his wicked father earlier on and so Amnon returns back to the wickedness that he had learned in the earlier days of his father but the people are frustrated they don't want to go in that direction and so they kill Amnon and so what ends up happening is when Amnon dies, Amnon has a son named Josiah, who is the grandfather of Manasseh. Josiah becomes the king at the ripe old age of 12. No, eight, excuse me. Amnon was 12. He was the older one, right? He's eight years old. And, and Josiah becomes king. And I like what this, the way in which the scripture defines or describes Josiah. Josiah was a man who is described as doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 
and he picks up where his father left off in trying to shift the nation back and he, he brings truth and he brings um, a, a heart that says we want to turn back to the one true God and as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, he goes in, he tears down the idols, he brings national change back in, he institutes Passover uh, back to the people, something that hadn't been happening for a very long time and the, the morality of the nation is changing but what's happening is, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the, the outward appearance was changing, but the inward hearts of the people was not. There was, there was behavior modification going on, but not transformation. And you see, that's what religion will do, right? Religion will, will, will change what's going on on the outside for other people to see, but religion won't touch what's going on on the inside. And you know what? God is more concerned about what's going on the inside than the outside. People care about the outside because that's what we see, right? God cares more about the heart. And when God changes what's going on the inside, what changes, then things will change on the outside as well. But it was not happening amongst the people. And so the people were, were, were uh, entering into um, religious efforts, right? Their, their, their display was very uh, religious appearing, but their hearts were far from God. And while this is all going on, Jeremiah the prophet is seeing this and, and he is prophesying to the people to, to turn back to God to repent of their, of their apathy, to repent of their sins, of their duplicity. He's known as the weeping prophet because his heart is breaking for his countrymen, knowing that the path that they're going on is going to bring judgment from God. And he's sounding the alarm to the people to turn from their ways and turn back to God. And the more he preached, the more he wept. And the more he wept, the more indignant people came, came in, their, in their own sin. Their rebellion, while, while indirectly towards God, was directed towards Jeremiah. As they rebelled towards God, they couldn't do anything to God, if you will, and so they, they went after God's prophet, Jeremiah. That's important to remember because you, maybe, maybe you know what it is to be hated for your love for God. Maybe you found yourself, whether it's in school or college or in the workplace or in your family, but your love for Jesus has caused isolation from the world around you. That the one, that the, the people hate you the most because of the one who you love the most. And that's what happened with Jeremiah. As Jeremiah was bringing the word of the Lord and he was, he was calling them to repent, the people's rebellious heart towards God are, are directed towards Jeremiah. And what happened to him happens to us as well. Has that been your experience? You get isolated, you get ridiculed, you get marginalized, you get, you're not listened to, you get canceled. Remember the words of Jesus, though. Matthew chapter 5, and verse 11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets like Jeremiah, who went before you. And so I want you to know that when you are persecuted, when you are marginalized, when you are canceled for your faith in Jesus Christ, you are in good company. 
Peter says in his epistle, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But look, he says rejoice. Rejoice in what? Rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. I love Paul will mention in Philippians where he wants to share in not only the, the power of the resurrection, but in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He says that I might know him. And that's what he said, that's what, that's what Peter is saying here. That we are to rejoice in so far as much as we share in Christ's sufferings, that we also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, punch him in the mouth. Just wanna make sure you're listening. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. Are you with me this morning? Are you awake? Do you need that extra hour of sleep now? I thought that was pretty funny. It went right over your head. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You might not feel blessed, but you are blessed. And sometimes we need to check away from how we feel, embrace, embrace what is real. We are blessed. You are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. In other words, don't, don't suffer because you're doing stupid things. Make sure you're suffering because you're standing for Christ. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, not because of a political party, not because of an agenda, not because of all the things that everybody's dividing over, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God in that name. And so many of us have been there at different seasons and different times of our life. And so likewise, Jeremiah, because of the ministry that God called him to, Jeremiah was an outcast. Jeremiah was unliked in his community. Jeremiah was persecuted. Jeremiah was threatened. Jeremiah was arrested. Jeremiah was attacked. Jeremiah was marginalized. He was maligned. And he's at this point of his life that, that he's seen the goodness of God on display as he's seen people avoid the judgment of God as, Je as Josiah brought reform, true reform. And we saw how God blessed them, but even in the midst of the blessing, he saw apathy taking place in the lives of people. And he saw that over time, people returning back to the ways of the ungodly kings. He sees that people turning their backs on God. Apathy is setting in. Wickedness has returned. And all of their rebellion towards God is directed towards God's prophet. The voice who is reminding them of their sinful ways that they needed to turn from. And at this point, Jeremiah had enough. Have you ever felt like that? You get to a point where it's just so weary. You just think, when is the change going to happen? How much longer is it going to go? And here's Jeremiah. He's seeing the people and the hearts and the ways and the actions and the, despite that, how God has been good to them. And he's shaking them. He's ringing the bell. And they are not changing their ways. And he's at this point where he's had enough. And in Jeremiah chapter 12, we see, we read about his first complaint that he makes to the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 12. It says in verse one, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Isn't that great? 
You ever complain to God, like, you don't have to raise your hand? <laughs> Righteous are you, our Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Yes, the question? Why do all the treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. That's the religious community, right? They're close to God in their words, but their hearts are far from them, far from him. But you, O oh Lord, you know me, you see me, you test my heart towards you. Put, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the, and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our land, our latter end. What a heavy complaint that, that Jeremiah launches towards the Lord. God, you see all that's going on. These people are horrible. They're vile, they're wicked, they're, they're deceptive. Apathy has set on God, would you just kill them? That's what he says. God, would you just, would you just take them out? Enough's enough, just, just kill them. And notice the response from the Lord. It's the theme of this entire series that we've been have been and will continue to go through. And it's the most profound question that can be asked to Jeremiah. And perhaps it's the most profound question that can be asked of us today. Oh God, he's like, look at the chaos in the world. The sin in the world, the wickedness in the world, the ungodliness in the world. Oh God, just, just kill them. To which God replies, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with the horses? God, they're such a mess. They're so far from you. Would you just take them out, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter? That's some hard words right there. He's not like, like looking for a quick snuff out. He's like, no, 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 no. Let's, let's drag this out and make it painful. Set them aside like sheep for the slaughter. Take them out, God. Kill them. God, you see all that's going on. These people are horrible, and here's what I think you should do. I think you should just kill them. And notice the response. If you've raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with the horses? What does that mean? How has Jeremiah raced with men on foot and become weary as a result? We're gonna go back to that text and take a look and, and, and kind of zoom in a little closer at his complaint to the Lord and let's kind of see what might be under the surface a little bit. Righteous are you, O Lord, verse one, when I complain to you, yet I will plead my case before you. In other words, God, I know you know me. You know my makeup. You know my frame. You know what makes me tick. I just need to make sure you really know me. 
I want to really make sure that you, that you get me. I mean, I mean, if you knew me, you'd know I'm not really doing too well right now. And what Jeremiah is really saying to the Lord is not that I'm not doing really well, but Lord, I don't think you're doing a really good job either right now. Because Lord, from what I'm seeing and what I'm observing in the lives of people, I think you, can I just bring some advice to you, God? I think it's time to take them out. Lord, if you, if you knew me, if you really knew me, I wouldn't have to initiate this conversation, but, 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 I may, but let, me just, let me just make sure you know me. Let's take a look at what, what is catching the attention of Jeremiah. What, take note of, what, of what, is, what is distracting Jeremiah. See if maybe you can find yourself in here. Because so many times we look and say, I mean, if I asked you to raise your hand, I'm sure you would. You see, God knows you. I mean, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet there's those times in our lives that we think, do you, do you know what's going on here with God? I mean, we don't verbalize that. We don't bring that up at Bible study. But inside, we're kind of thinking, Hello, do you see? Do you care what I'm going through? What's distracting him? Look, here comes the question. All right, God, let me, let me explain, Lord, what I mean by this. God, why did the wicked prosper? Why is that? What is Jeremiah really saying here? He's saying, God, it's bothering me when I look and see what they have. Why are they prospering? Why do they have things? I mean, enough for nothing, God, but I'm your servant. I'm being faithful. I'm doing the right thing here. I don't seem to have what everybody else is having. I'm looking over here. Why are they prospering? Jeremiah is noticing and he's frustrated over the, the prosperity of other people, specifically frustrated over what they have. Do you know how distracted we can get? When we get consumed and we start comparing what we have as compared to what other people have, especially those ungodly people, you think, that's not, say with me, fair. Maybe there's a reason why God gave us that last commandment, thou shalt not covet. Maybe we ought to be careful to not be looking around at what everybody else has and concluding that we got the short end of the stick. I don't know about you, but I, I think if God gave me everything that I thought I should have, it would ruin me. Maybe if God's not filling your account the way you think he should, maybe that's his provision in your life to keep you dependent upon him. Maybe if God answered every single prayer that we had for whatever, that might get us to the point where we don't think we really need God. I don't know. Everybody's different. But I do know this. We're not to be looking outwardly at what everybody else has and draw conclusions based on what we don't have. And Jeremiah's getting a little distracted here. Somewhere along the line, he's like, why, why do they have that? Why are they prospering? Look what they have, but it doesn't stop there. Next he says, why also, God, why, why do they all, why do all the treacherous people thrive? Why are they thriving? I don't feel like I'm thriving. 
Do you see what's happening in my life? I'm getting, I'm getting canceled. I'm getting marginalized. I'm being lives. I'm getting threats to my life, and the treacherous are thriving. Not only is he frustrated with what they have, he's frustrated with how it seems they're doing. Why are they, why are they thriving? Maybe Jeremiah had a Facebook account and he went on and started looking, searching and seeing how everybody else in his friend list is doing so well. Doesn't it seem like everybody, all your friends on Facebook are thriving? Something was distracting Jeremiah. Something was causing Jeremiah to redefine what thriving looks like. Something was distracting Jeremiah to redefine what prospering looks like. Jeremiah was missing something here. And so he's frustrated over what they have. He's frustrated over what they are doing. God, why would you allow these treacherous people? I mean, tell us how you really feel, Jeremiah. Right? I mean, like, you're supposed to love these people, Jeremiah. Why are you letting these treacherous people thrive? My question is, Jeremiah, why are you getting so distracted by it? Why are you allowing what they have and what they're doing to get you to a point where you're complaining to God about it? Look at verse 2. You plant them and they take root. They grow and they produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. Now Jeremiah is so distracted that by, by what he's seeing that he begins to question how God deals with them. In fact, he brings it up a notch. Look at the opening line of verse two. You planted them. What does that mean? It's your fault. It's your, doesn't it remind you of Adam when Adam gets called on the carpet after he falls and God says, where are you, Adam? What have you done? He's like, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit and we ate, right? No accountability, no ownership. He's like, you know what? She messed me up, but I wouldn't have her if it wasn't for you. And that's what Jeremiah is doing. He's complaining and he's like, and by the way, I didn't put them here, you did. You planted them here. It's your fault. He's questioning God on how God deals with them. But look, verse three. But you, O Lord, you know me. You see me. You test my heart towards you. Put them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. You know my heart, God. I, I'm pure before you. You know I'm doing the best I can with what I've got. They're not. And so, Lord, you see, here's what I would suggest. Kill them. Just, let's just start. Let's just stop the bleeding. Let's just take them out. Because they're not serving you like, like I'm serving you. Have you been there? 
You get so deeply entrenched in a situation that you can't see the forest through the trees. And you feel like Jeremiah that you need to inform God on how he should handle the situation because that's exactly what Jeremiah's doing. He's like, God, listen, I've watched these people for a long time. I've studied their ways. They're not going to change. And maybe you didn't see this. And so as your faithful prophet, I'm going to bring this to you and I'm going to give you a little advice. Kill them. Now, we wouldn't be so brazen, I hope, to do that. But don't we do that in other ways? God, why don't you answer this prayer the way I think you should according to my will? Why do you allow things like this happen? Why don't you? I think you should. Why can't you? That's what Jeremiah found himself doing. He got distracted. And now he stepped in and has the audacity to instruct God on how he should deal with people. You know what that tells me? People haven't changed one bit, even in the church. Because we all have an idea of what God could do and should do and who he should put in places of influence and everything else. And it's like, you know, God, you're sovereign over the heavens. How about I just trust you? God is omniscient. He knows everything there is to know about everything. I'm an idiot. I see very little. I'm very short-sighted. I could see maybe past a week and get an idea of what might happen and still have no control over that. Better to put my trust in an all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, eternal God who keeps the, the heavens in motion and not question his ways. Doesn't stop there though. Verse four, how long will the land mourn and the grass and every field wither for, e for the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our latter end. Not only is, God, is Jeremiah instructing God on what he should do, take them out, but he's also informing God on the timing of it. How long is it gonna take you? I think now is the time, God. Take them out. How long will the land mourn? The grass of the field, until the grass of the field withers? Like, well, how long, God? Let's put a little heat under this and let's make it happen. You see, Jeremiah was in the weeds with the people. He was looking at what they have. He was looking at what they did. He was looking at how they prospered. And when he saw that the only one who could do something about it, God, didn't, well, he just had to complain. He just had to go to God and complain and say, God, why? Why are they prospering? Why are they thriving? Why aren't, they, aren't you killing them? Why aren't you taking them out now? To which God replies, if you've raced with men on foot, and they have wearied you. Jeremiah, how will you compete with the horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? 
In other words, Jeremiah, why are you racing with men on foot? Why are you so focused on what's down here? I never called you to race with men on foot. I never called you to get so distracted by what they have and what they do and how they do it and how and when I respond. That's not what I called you to do. Jeremiah, what are you going to do when it really gets difficult? Jeremiah, what are you gonna do when you have to compete with the horses? If men are tying your, tiring you out, how in the world are you going to compete with your horses? Jeremiah, if you're getting wiped out in a land of safety, what are you going to do when the heat gets turned up and it really gets difficult in the church? Church? I didn't create you to race with men on foot. I created you to run with the horses. I created you to run with the horses, to stay out of the weeds. And can I tell you, church, you are not called to run the race with men by foot. You are not of this world. You've been called out of the world. I mentioned in the first service, if I had the ability to take one biblical truth and, and, and literally just impregnate it into your spirit, it would be this, to know who you are in Jesus Christ. To know who you are in Jesus Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We allow the world and our past and our surroundings and our influences to define us, but God is the one who defines us. Know who you are in Jesus Christ because when you know who you are, It'll inform the way you live your life. It'll inform the way you see God, yourself, and the world around you. And if I could just, I just pray that the Holy Spirit makes that truth real to you. Jesus said in, in, in chapter 15 of John's gospel, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you're not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. You see, we've got to get to a point where that just sounds nice and affects the way we live our 24-7. I mean, folks, if this stuff isn't real, then what are we doing? What are we doing? The less real this is, the more we're going to be like that ping pong ball going back and forth on the game of life. You're not of this world. Jesus in praying for his disciples, speaking to his father, he says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Why? Because they're not of this world in the same way that I am not of this world. Do you see the connection that Jesus just made? That in the same way that Jesus is not of this world, neither are you. Listen, if that's not true, throw your Bible away. You're wasting your time. This truth has got to impact us to the point that it informs the way we live our lives. 
Paul, in writing to the church at Colossae, tells us, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the world. Why? Because we're not of the world. John writes in his first epistle, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you see how defining that is? I mean, that gets right into the business of our life, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but that makes me feel uncomfortable. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, look, is not from the Father, but is from the world. What kind of stuff? The stuff that we go after, the stuff that we allow to define us, the stuff that we draw our, our, our affirmations from, all the things that, that we put before our pursuit of, our pursuit of Jesus. They're not from the Father, but they're from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. The stuff that people are pursuing isn't going to last. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. No who you are in Christ. I don't care where you go to church. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you, know who you are in Christ. How do I know that? Read the word of God. It is his love letter to you that will define for you who you are. I love how Peter lays it out in 1 Peter chapter two. He says, you, you who? You. The person in front of you, the person behind you, the person aside of, on each side of you, the person watching online, the person watching TV, the person, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What is a holy nation? The word holy means other. In other words, we are a part of something that is not of this world. You are a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. How many have been called out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light? I love this. Once, he says, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Before you were nothing, before you were alienated from God, before you were under the wrath of God, before you were dead in your trespasses and sins, before you were not a people, but now something's changed. Blood has been shed. Blood has been applied. We've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb and we who are not a people are now the people of God. What a promotion. Once you had not received mercy, but now, now we receive mercy. What is that grace? Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. I thank God for the grace of God. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. 
I like mercy too. Mercy is really, really important to me because I don't want to get what I deserve, do you? God's mercy. God not giving me what I deserve. He says in verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, in other words, as people who don't belong in this world, as pilgrims that are passing through, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they will, when they, that they may see your good works and realize that what they say about you isn't true. and glorify God on the day of visitation. What are all these passages, and many, so many others like it, ultimately saying, live as you're called. Live as you're called. Run with the horses. Don't get entangled with the affairs of men in this world. Raise your standards higher. God's created you and designed you and saved you to run with the horses. You ever see horses running over those hurdles, right? So graceful, so determined, so powerful, so poised and in control. They don't run around those hurdles. They, they're not distracted by those hurdles. They just rise above them like they're not even there because they're focused on where they're going, right? That's what we're called to do. Hey, I've got hurdles, you've got hurdles, we've all got hurdles, right? We all got things that we need to deal with that, that try to pull us away from what we are. But we need to run like the horses. Those horses that go forward. What are the hurdles that get put in front of you? What foot races are you getting entangled in that's keeping you from walking in the peace of God the way you're designed to walk in. That's keeping you from spiritual growth. You see, here's the problem with the distraction. The nature of a distraction is it distracts you from the thing you're supposed to be looking at. That's what it does, right? Despite its very nature. That's why they put the blinders, and when you go to the city, they put the blinders on the horse's eyes in the city so that they can not look to the right or the left. They kind of go forward. And you know what? I think we need to learn from them. The writer of Hebrews says to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of a faith. Yeah, but what's going on over here? It doesn't matter what's going on over here. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher. Yeah, but I have to deal with this. No, no, no. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look unto Jesus and he will inform us on how we ought to deal with the things around us. You know, sometimes we can move in so close to a situation that we lose perspective because we're so close to it. You know the old saying, you can't see the forest through the trees. You're in the weeds. You're so close to the problem. You're so close to the hurt. You're so close to the situation. You're so close to the person, the power, the influence, the, the needs. You're so close to it that it eclipses how big God is. You ever see the, comes around once in a while, the supermoon? 
You look like you have no idea what I'm talking about. The big, big moon? Bella Luna, right? The big one? Big Ralph Cramden face on there, right? The big one, right? I guess sometimes they, those who know astronomy far more than me, they, sometimes the position, the, the, the timing of the moon as it, as it, as it uh, hits a certain position, it just seems so close that you can kind of reach out and touch it. Do you ever notice that sometimes the moon seems really far away and sometimes it seems really, really close? It doesn't move. It's just that your perspective to it changes. Do you ever see an eclipse? How many have seen an eclipse? You're not supposed to see an eclipse. You're not supposed to look at an eclipse. Don't look at an eclipse. But for those of you who have seen it on video, and, 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 and which is a safe way to view an eclipse, what's, what's going on there? The moon passes the sun at such a time that it appears that the moon is bigger than or is as big as the sun. And for a period of time, it just seems that the moon is bigger than the sun because it is eclipsing the sun. But the reality is, the sun is 400 times bigger than the moon. So what you see, what you experience, what you feel isn't reality. Your perspective is changing because of the proximity or the closeness, the appearance of the closeness to the moon. It's eclipsing the fact that the sun is 400 times bigger. And you see, that's what distractions do. It gives us the appearance that the mountain that I'm facing is bigger than my God. That my need is bigger than God's ability to meet it. That my pain is bigger than his ability to heal. That my feeling of disconnection is bigger than the fact that God loves me. How I feel at the moment needs to be informed by what God says. Our perspective needs to be adjusted. Now let me end with this, because I know I went a little bit over today. There's only one way to run with the horses. I mean, you can't, can anybody try and keep up with a horse? You can't run with the horses. There's only one way to run with the horses. You know how that is? Supernaturally. Relying on strength that is outside yourself. Relying on the Holy Spirit of God to fill you and empower you and equip you so that you can rise above the foot race of men and compete and run with the horses. That's where we are designed to live. That's where we are designed to go. God is calling us, church, to rise above and not get distracted by all the stuff that is distracting and dividing and discouraging. It's kind of like, yeah, there's crazy stuff going on in the world, but listen, this is the church's finest hour. This is an opportunity for the church to relinquish its control and its dependence on our own ability and lean in deep into the Holy Spirit and to learn what does it mean to walk by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to live a life in the Spirit. And that's what we're gonna look at next week. But for today, 
in preparation for next week. I gotta ask you, what's eclipsing your view of God? As you look at your life, is your life being lived out through the lens of God's greatness, of God's goodness, of God's ability to carry you? Can you identify those hurdles? Because we all have them. I said this morning, how many feel like I'm speaking to you? Um, I'm speaking to me. I'm preaching in the mirror this morning because I've got hurdles just like you've got hurdles. I've got distractions and fears and concerns and everything else just like you've got. There's no difference. I'm on a journey just like you're on a journey. But I do know this, that as I will lean in to the Holy Spirit, that's what's driving this whole series is that we need to get closer to God. We need to hear his voice. We need to sense his leading in this time when nobody else knows what to do. This is the church's greatest opportunity. But we're not gonna get to where God wants us to be through the wisdom of men, by our own experiences and the things we've learned over the years. We must depend on the Holy Spirit of God. As our worship team comes forward and asks them to kind of lead us, I just want to give just some time just to, just to respond a little bit. In the quietness of our own hearts, it's kind of why we shifted the service around a bit. I just, I just didn't want to end without allowing us to respond to God's word. Do you feel like you're running with the horses or you're getting exhausted trying to run the race of men? God's got so much more for us. God's got so much more for us. God's call and God's equipping and God's plan and purpose for our lives. Eye has not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man the things that God has in store for those who love him. That's not talking about heaven. That's talking about right here on this earth. But we're not going to do it if we're just trying to keep up with the Joneses, running the race with men. Got to run with the horses. And so let's just pray. Are there areas in your life that you've allowed to keep you from pursuing Jesus? If there are, just bring them to God. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a pursuit of something. It could be very good things. It's just not the best thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the scripture says, and all these things will be added to you. I just know sometimes we can just so easily get distracted by the loudest voices. I just want to have a time this morning that the Holy Spirit's voice can be the loudest in the room because God is a personal God and he knows our struggle he knows our frame he knows the things that worry us at the moment we wake up and worry us the moment we go to sleep at night he knows the things that we allow to distract us from 
going to church or reading our Bible or praying or fellowshipping, all of the things that we are called to do as God's people. Just identify those things in your own life. I got a whole list of my own. And then just ask God, God, would you forgive me of that? Holy Spirit, would you just place your finger on those areas of each and every one of our lives? That relationship that may need new boundaries, that job that may need new some boundaries, those habits that need to go, those relationships that need to be severed, the pursuit of those things that need to get let go of. Holy Spirit, would you just individually in each of our own hearts in ways that only you can, can you just bring to the surface those things? And then would you give us the ability to change? Would you give us the grace that we need to put in motion new disciplines, new priorities, new focus so that we don't get robbed of the best that you have for us. And Lord, we want to run with the horses. We don't want dry Christianity. We don't want to go through the motions. We want to experience everything you have for us. Help us to not get in the way. Worship team is going to lead us in a and it's such a beautiful, reflective song this morning. And just in your own, just in the quietness of your own heart, just allow this song to minister to you and, and just res, let's just respond together in, in, in worship to the Lord. Let's just stand together. And then they'll close us out from there.